stuff a Coney Island of the mind in a pocket, a battered notebook, Vic pens, and every poetic image thought I ever had. Then I found her old smashed felt beret in the basement. And when she finally threw it out, I discovered more at the Army-Navy store. And they were tossed from the bus window on the way to school. Yet still, I wrote poems to the girls I called the Twin Puddles, the Mountaintop Chrysanthemum, the Mother of Poetry, who was not my mother at all. And they laughed. And I found a black corduroy jacket with patch pockets and forgot more poems than the Norton Anthology and drank black coffee and listened to jazz and read and read and wandered alone and with other outcast poet souls and wrote more poems and was laughed at some more and wept and walked and wrote and grew old and forgot more poems than I could ever write. And now, now I dress myself like a poet. <laughs> So I thought I'd run through some of my greatest hits and then some of the, maybe a couple newer pieces. Um, and uh, this is one that I'd like to do it tonight for uh, lots of reasons. One, uh, there's some people here in the audience who will remember it. And two, it sort of pays tribute to one of our friends who left us recently uh, for that poetry reading up, up there in the sky. And uh, it's from my collection Boundless Abodes of Albany from Benevolent Bird Press, also for sale. This is Where Were the Professors? <laughs> and it's dedicated to all those academic poets who only show up at poetry readings when they are paid. <laughs> when Charlene opened the doors and the poets charged in fighting for the bottom of the list, when you stood here <coughs> off stage, sweating, shaking, and you realized you'd had too many beers already, when the podium shook and blinded by the light you wondered, is anybody out there? And a beer bottle hit you, where were the professors? When Matt Kelly confronted the homeless and greeted the ghosts of his buddies right here on this stage. When Tanya read her poem to her father, Siobhan a poem to her mother. When Mary Panza's curses made cocks fall like dried leaves all along Central Avenue. Where were the professors? When John Rucker's landlord heard him all the way across town with the microphone off. When Carl lit a candle before an icon and pondered death in his Russian soul. When Tom fashioned tiny warheads into suppositories for the generals and the politicians. And 
and I, I called for the death of Richard Nixon. Where were the professors? When we read poems about anything, including Jan, j grandchildren and the heat, when we argued on stage, off stage, along the bar, in the toilet, out the door, into the gutter until morning, and a police horse shit in our faces, when our notebooks dissolved in beer and we lost the best poem we ever wrote, <laughs> where were the professors? what that was about and where that was about, that's why we have the questions and answers. Right? I, don't have to, I don't have to explain all that. Um, but another poem from back in that same era. This is one of my favorite poems that I ever wrote. And it's in Open Mic, the Albany Anthology that we published. When did we do this, Mary? Mary? 92, 90? 94. 94? 94. With, um, actually, it was published by the Hudson Valley Writers Guild, but you know it was really a community effort and all that. So yeah, for sale in my car. Yeah, for sale in your car. Right? <laughs> so this is this is a this is the poem that um, a friend of mine went to Paris and she came back with a book of photography by the French uh, photographer Eugene Ajay. So anyway, so she sent me a book of, of, of photographs of. Uh, Eugene Ajay, uh, early 20th century photographer. And I, I would walk to work the, um, in the morning, and I would walk down Spring Street in Albany, particularly the block between Lark and Dove. And I always thought that the back of the buildings there, because it's really, you're really looking in the backs of the buildings on that street, looked like something out of one of his photographs. So this is a, combines a real event and real people with imaginary stuff, which is, I guess is what we do as poets, right? I guess that's what we do. This is called um, Therese's Balcony. On a morning such as this, <coughs> on Spring Street in the gray morning air, on this morning as I look up, hoping to see you at your window, I see your blue towel on the railing like Yesterday's sky left out to dry in last night's rain. On a morning such as this in Paris in 1911, in springtime, when the morning is still with mist on the Rue d'Avila, Monsieur Auger, with his box with magic plates, his magic wooden cabinet, traps tiny Paris, tiny buildings in tiny mornings. On this morning on Spring Street, I watch you close your windows and come out on the fire escape. On a morning such as this, Monsieur Ajay gazes up. As she steps out on her balcony, the steam from her tea coils to rise through the morning mist. Through his lens, she is upside down. Her white dress seems to hang in the air. You watch morning come to the city. I watch you touch your hair, your lips, your hem brushes your feet. Good morning, Monsieur Ajay calls and asks her name. Je m'appelle Therese. The mist begins to burn off. He wipes dust from the lens. Good morning, Therese. How beautiful. Yes, but it will be hot soon. On a morning such as this, when the lens closes, she is gone. When Monsieur Ajay looks for her again in the, plate of, in the plate of glass, the cloth on the railing is gray, like the morning hung out to dry. But she moved and is gone, a white mist left on the glass. On this morning, on Spring Street, I want to touch your hand. Instead, my hand touches the morning. You wave. It is as if I will always see you like this on a morning such as this. So I've been a little serious. I'm gonna. I want to. I thought I'd do a, a little uh, sillier poem. 
to me a few years ago of being in a diner with some friends of mine in college, a goofy bunch of poetry type people. And it, we had these paper placemates that they give you, placemats, that they give you in the diners. And it was a map of the United States, an outline of the United States with blank lines for each of the state names and for the state capitals. And it was supposed to be a little test where you fill them in and see how many you got right. You know, it was for ki keep kids busy while they're waiting for their french fries. Well, we decided that we were just gonna rename all the states. So <coughs> we, we had a lot of fun filling in the, the, that at will. So this is what this is about. Living in Wilcox. <laughs> the diner placemats are maps of the United States left blank, unlabeled, outlines invisible from outer space, meant to entertain kids, adults without conversation, to show off what we forgot from fourth grade civics. Instead, I give the familiar outlines new names, my own, those of my friends, even people I don't like, for places like the former Texas or Utah. I try to remember the Albanies, all the cities I've been to, those not yet on the list. I name a random city Wilcox, somewhere in middle America. Imagine living there, going to school less than anonymously, eggs over easy in the Miss Wilcox diner, Stop for speeding by the Wilcox police. <laughs> Passing proclamations in the Wilcox City Council. Voting against the incumbent mayor of Wilcox. <laughs> I see my name on the postmark. Assign my own unique zip code. See flocks of high school girls in purple sweatshirts proclaiming Wilcox High. <laughs> Squadrons of green trucks stenciled Wilcox, DPW, picking up garbage in the morning. <laughs> there are actually towns called Wilcox. I, I know there's one in Arizona. Um, I'm not sure where else. I claim there's one in New York. On my Facebook page, you'll see that I'm from Wilcox, New York. I don't think there is. So my friend um, Dale Weiss, who is also a member of Veterans for Peace, lives down in Woodstock, has a press called Post Traumatic Press. And he publishes a lot of veterans and he publishes other people's poetry. But he recently published this little collection called Poems for Peace, Poems for Justice. And the four poets are Jay Wank. Pay attention to this. Jay Wank, Dan Wilcox, Larry Winters and Dale Weiss. So we are the four W's, I guess. So um, I'm very pleased. And, and proceeds from the sale of this book uh, go to support, I think it's a food pantry down in, uh, yeah, the food bank of Hudson, of the Hudson Valley. A um, year, year and a half ago, um, one of my mentors, one of my elders, in the peace movement, a fellow named Ed Block died. And Ed Block was a World War II Marine veteran, very active in veterans for peace, spent his years uh, as a union organizer for the Electrical Workers Union, and was well respected by veterans on both sides of the divide between traditional veterans organizations and of peace organizations. In fact, he once served as the president of the uh, New York State um, Council of Veterans Organizations, which included you know, the VFW, the, the um, American Legion, and all that. Um, anyway, so this, is, um, this poem was written in his honor, but it's about something that actually happened uh, when I was a young student in New York City. And the title of the poem is A.J. Musty. If you don't know who A.J. Musty is, go back home and look it up. It's M-U-S-T-E. Um, you'll find out a little bit about him in here, but A.J. Musty. 
It was in Union Square, New York City, mid-1960s. Still another anti-war rally. The concrete park filled with college students in denim jackets, jeans, work boots, ponytails, sandals, afros. We were young and angry and knew the war was wrong. On stage, folk singers, speakers, experts, they said the war was wrong. The line through Vietnam of faith. Soldiers, <coughs> soldiers were burning villages, rice paddies, children. We knew it was bad. We were angry, chanting. The man on stage wore a three-piece suit, white shirt, a tie, clean shaven, old. He said, war is not an accident. It is the outcome of a way of life. If we want to attack war, we must attack that way of life. He said, the problem is the victor thinks he has just proven war and violence win. He asked, how do we teach the victor a lesson? That man looked like my uncle, like someone going off to work on Wall Street, to a wedding, like someone from Washington we hated. That man said, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. I looked up at that man on stage. I said to myself, when I grow up, I want to be as cool as that old guy, that peacemaker in a three-piece suit. And uh, I think it's important when you have a new book out that you should read a poem from that book. Um, just so that people say, oh, I have to have that. But look around, most of you folks have this, but that's all right. I'll read it anyways. Um, sorry, Anna, I'm gonna have to, I don't have a poem about you in here, but I do have a poem about Jack. <laughs> so I'll read the poem about Jack, all right? My, my daughter, Anna's in the audience here. Someone of whom I'm very proud. She's a, uh, <coughs> Particularly for you ladies, it's someone that you need in your life, and, and I look around and I think all of you fall within that category. Um, Anna works doing mammography at St. Peter's. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm proud of her. So this is called Jack Sketching. Jack sketches a thousand arm figure at the Tibetan Museum with a thick, soft, black artist pencil. In his pocket notebook, like the one like the one he gave me. He often giving me pocket notebooks and I'm giving him pocket notebooks. I see him again at six years old, lying on the dock in Gloucester, sketching boats with a fistful of red, blue, yellow, and green colored pencils. In a pocket notebook that I gave him too big for his little pocket. Then I towered over him, paused to look at his work. I pause now as he towers over me. <laughs> All right, well, I think I'll read one more. And uh, this is a, a new poem. I've gotten into the habit in the last few years of writing uh, a poem uh, either on my birthday or about my birthday, but it has to be, be it's always titled Birthday Poem, uh, whatever year. So this is Birthday Poem 2016. I really didn't know at the time I wrote it how prescient it would be in some ways. Birthday Poem 2016. Coming back to the same water, different beach, the surf coming, going, on a birthday that surprises me how many I've had, and glad of it. Dad gone at 65, Ma at 52, I'm beyond them both. Famous poets gone this year past, of course. 
but here, the local. Rutherford in a bottle, Weinman slowly to mind rot, Fulton alone in his own misery. More to come this year, no crystal ball needed for that. But now, to keep going, going, slow or fast, but going. Thanks, folks. Give a big round of applause to Dan Wilcox.
I had been anti-war before I went in the Army. I was anti-war while I was in. And in fact, there was a whole network of anti-war people. And I continued to be anti-war afterwards. So that part sort of stayed the same. I think what changed is, and I've only realized that some years after I got out, was that my status as a veteran helped me get the message across better in the anti-war movement than not. Charlie's been with me down in New York. When we went down with Tom, we were at some anti-war things, and, and Charlie kept calling me. He said, I was a, a media magnet, you know, <laughs> where my veterans for peace had. <coughs> we had film crews from South America, from Japan, all coming up to me and you know asking me about this. You know? So um, it gives me a special opportunity to use that status to speak out. That's uh, yeah, good. Bring the bad merits on. Did you ever consider not being drafted? Did you ever consider running? Um, I, yeah. Um, thank you for leaving that. Thank you. All right. Oh, thank you. All right. Good. She saw where I was getting at. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it was in everyone's mind at the time. And, and, you know, when I've been around it long enough to know there were lots of alternatives and stuff. While I say that, let me say one thing, that I, I didn't have the, the courage to do some of that. Some of it I wanted to stay here. I didn't want to go to Canada. This is my country. I'm going to stay here and do what I can in my country. One of the things that I didn't do, and I admire people for doing, and one of those that sit here in the audience, Bob Sharkey, is alternative service. Bob Sharkey served his time at the VA hospital in Albany, and I don't think enough credit is given to people like that. You know, like Tom said, we all thank you for your service. Well, excuse me, um, there are thousands of people like him. I did read in one or two open mics there. 
Nobody said anything. Nobody gave me anything encouragement. Nobody had the word said, oh, pretty good. Oh, where are you from? Like we do here. So um, it, it didn't work the way I thought it was going to work. When did you take out the camera and start taking photos? That was uh, and later on. Later on. The why is much more interesting than the when. It was, it was a mid-80s sometime. But the why... Um, I was at these readings, <laughs> and I would take out my notebook, and I'd write down a little short description of what the person looked like. So I, because I, you know, I was living in the East Village, a lot of these people lived in the East Village. And I'd see them on the street. I said, oh, who was that guy? What kind of painting? Oh, I don't know. So I would write down their description, and then I said, wait a minute, you idiot, you got a camera? <laughs> <laughs> you know how to take pictures? <laughs> So I started, I don't have too many pictures from then. Some of the very, very first pictures I have from going to poetry readings was a reading by Eileen Miles, pretty famous poet these days. And that's some of my earliest ones, because she lived down there too. In fact, she used to be a waitress at the Tin Palace for a short time at this bar that I used to hang out at All right. So you got a question? Yeah. Um, <coughs> what stands out about sure I realized, you know, in that moment, but before, I was living in Yonkers with my, with my wife Mary, Mary and had um, two little kids, and working downtown Manhattan, and I got a newsletter, and I think it was put out by Joe Bruchak, that's why, called the Greenfield Review, or something, it was like a four-page folded kind of thing, and it listed in there this event in Albany called the Readings Against the End of the and it gave the address, before emails and stuff, it gave the actual physical address of this guy in Albany, and uh, you know, it said, if you want to sign up, contact him. So I sent him, I wrote, written a series of poems, which I eventually published as a chapbook called Meditations of a Survivor, and it was what I call a science fiction poem, and it imagines a survivor of a nuclear war that destroys New York, living in, <laughs> get this, the World Trade Center. <laughs> so, no, this is back in the 80s. So, it was eight, so my first one was 85. So it was around 85. So I wrote to Tom, sent him the poem, and said, I'd like to come up and, and read this. And of course, he wrote back, yeah, sure. So, uh, and I was like, 8 o'clock in the morning with my slot, you know? And so we would come up here because, um, I mean, I have brothers and sisters up here. And Mary's mother and father lived up here. So we would come up often with the kids. So we planned to come up for the weekend of the readings against the end of the world. And I wrote to any number of the friends that I had here and um, told them I was going to be reading at this event. I was thrilled. At <laughs> 15 minutes. Holy shit. 15 minutes. And so that poem took about 15 minutes to read. So I said, this is perfect. So we came up for that, and I read, and I, I met Tom, and he told me that it was like the second year that he'd done this or something, and I was just thrilled, and he was very open and warm, and we all know that, um, and it, I was just sucked in, so the next year we came back up and, and read again, um, and then when I moved up here, and I told him I was thinking about moving up, uh, I was working for the federal government, and I was wanted to get my job back with the state. So I, I talked to him about that, chit-chatted. And um, then when I moved up here, I discovered he lived like five blocks from me. <laughs> you know? And that was when he was just starting the readings at the QE2. He started off with some feature readings and stuff. Judy Johnson and people like that, Jill and stuff, were, were reading at these planned readings. And it sort of evolved over months and in the next year or so into the regular series that we're all familiar with at the QE2. But in the meantime, I'd gotten to know him from going to these readings. And again, speaking of the camera, I was the guy with the camera. Because back then, people didn't take pictures at things, you know? Um, so I was the guy walking around with the camera. So um, he 
appreciated that. And then um, we became friends. And I don't, uh, Charlie started this series called um, Poetry Motel. It was an interview series, sort of like yep. this, on that video out at the Bethlehem Library. And he had a notice in the Hudson Valley Writers Guild newsletter that he was looking for poets to read for this new series. So I wrote Charlie, and uh, I was in the, I was the second one. Um, that black poet Davidson, Dave? Davidson, I think her name? Sally? No, not Sally. I completely don't remember his last name. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but I remember I was the but second. You were number two. I was number two. They both number one. I'm number two. Right. Oh, number two. Number two here. Uh, yeah, and, then, and so that's how I met Charlie. Now, what it was interesting, after we did the interview at the Del Mar Public Library, the Bethlehem Public Library, and then Charlie, you know, oh, I'd go to my house, we'll hang out. So I followed him in his car to his house. He lived on the other side of the tracks. So as we're driving to Charlie's house, we have to stop because the train was coming through. And we get to his house and he says, oh man, he says, I, that hardly ever happens. I said, you know, when I was a kid growing up here, I used to love those tracks. And sometimes it'd be a boxcar off on the siding and it'd be empty and open and I'd go up there and sit. I remember riding with a crayon on the side of the boxcar inside the line from Allen Ginsberg, boxcars, boxcars, boxcars. <laughs> you know, so I tell him, you know, he had this great beat library, which is mostly the same book that I had at home. <coughs> um, so we clicked, and then Charlie got enthused about this poetry festival, the Dodge Festival in New Jersey. So get to know Tom, too. I don't you know, I'll have to ask him about his, how he met Tom. But, you know, we all knew each other. and. Um, so he said, let's go down there. So we went down there for uh, a weekend, the Dodge Festival. And on the way back, we were, uh, guys will know this. You're driving in a long distance in the car, and you sit there, and you, you start talking about shit, right? You know, hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we form a, like a band, you know? <laughs> we have tour shorts. Why do a podcast? <laughs> exactly. Come up with these cockamamie schemes, you know? And they're all just talk. And a couple weeks after I get home, Charlie calls up and says, you know that idea we were talking about in the car? What idea, you know? You know <laughs> and, and well, our, you know, we were thinking of calling us the, you know, the three hombres, the tray hombres, <laughs> or whatever, you know. And we actually came up with the idea of doing all the Albanese. But Charlie went and looked how many Albanese and we said, I think we should do this. You know, you know there's 18 Albanese in the United States. Maybe we should do this. And we all thought he was crazy. And we did. How many did you, how many albums did you do? We got 13 then. We got 13 albums. Pretty good. Don's got a question. I wanted to, I love that poem, you know, about where the professors were. Yeah. And I'd like you to talk for people who don't, weren't there or don't remember yeah. the QE2. Well, you know, if, if you can remember the QE2, I knew you, were you weren't there. Saturday nights, mm -hmm. like maybe four Saturday nights in a row. And each night there would be two poets, and they were generally academic poets. Um, I'd probably Judy Johnson read there. Joe Cardillo. Joe, probably Joe oh, Cardillo. He had, he had other readings that Tom did. I don't remember for this series who, exactly who was in the series. But for the first three nights, they were all people who were sort of academics. And the last night, he picked four poets, and Carl was one of them, actually. He, he picked Carl Gluck, as we reference in the poem, and who just recently passed. Um, Carl was one of those. And I had been to most of those readings, maybe I missed one, but I had noticed that a lot of the poets that last night who were up there reading had been to some of those other readings. But none of the academic poets at any other reading except the one that they read. So that's the point of the poem. And actually the line, where were the professors, came from a democratic convention that was held soon after that, where it was Ted Kennedy who got up and said, did he say, where was George? Maybe it was about the first George Bush. But anyway, I think he did say, where was George? And he raised, 
he would put it, bring up these crises and say, where was George? So I picked up the line and said, where was George? Thank you, Don, for that question. Wow. Um, so the impact that, or the, the, the precedent you guys started years ago, starting these, you yeah. know, one open mic in town, one reading, yeah. one, and then watching it through, like, how do you, like, what do you think of the progression, the evolution of where we are now? Well, in some ways, it, it, it's, what's that phrase where they say the development Ontology recapitulate. You should know this, Rob. Well, ontology recapitulates phylogeny, or something like that. Yeah, right, right. Okay, thank you. Who's that? <laughs> Val. Thank you. It means that you know, that as a baby grows in the mother's womb, it goes through all the the, the evolutionary steps. First, it looks like a little fish, you know, that kind of stuff, and that's what it sort of means. Um, so that sort of happened to me. It wasn't us guys doing that, it was Tom and Tell, with the readings against the end of the world, and the readings at the Q2. Mm -hmm. And then other people got inspired, Mary got inspired to run it at Borders. I learned carrying his, carrying the, the mic stand, carrying the speakers for him. You know, Jim Carpool, he was a big environmentalist way before his time. Um, so he, he didn't want both of us driving down to the Q2, so he always offered me a ride. I think it was also so I could carry a shit for <laughs> <laughs> but, right. but because of my association with him, then I learned through that how to run an open mic, which you had to do. And my first open mic, the same third Thursday that I'm still running today, started at um, Cafe Web, Cafe Web yep. which is half of what Tierra Rosetta is now. Um, in 1997, December of 1997, because of Tom. I even bought the same goddamn sound system at that time. I still have. You're still using it. I'm still using it. So, so what, I, what I'm trying to say is the impact on me is the same as the impact on you and Mary and all of these other people. You see somebody doing something, and I said, shit, he's doing something really great. When I first met Tom, I said, he's doing exactly what I would love to be doing, but I don't know how to fucking do it, <laughs> you know? But he was doing it. So I learned from him. And then you pass it on. And, and that's sort of the point of my poem about A.J. Musty. When I mentioned Ed Block, you know, you, you find these, I'm calling it elders. I happen to like that word, elders. And you find these elders, and you emulate what they're doing. And you make it your own. I was just telling Charlie that you're doing, you, Tom Francis, <laughs> uh, doing pretty much the kind of things that I was doing, only you're taking it further in the 21st century. I was doing it with a, with a film camera and notebooks and all stuff. Now, now I'm doing a blog, and now I'm doing a clicker site. But you got, you know, you bring it up a few notches into the, this digital age. You've got these archives of all this stuff. And so that's what we do. So if we're successful, we pass it on. And, and if we're really successful, someone comes along, picks it up. The Thelonious Monk has his No, you're all involved in this in one way or another, but even just by supporting it and coming out to them. Thelonious Monk has this line that says, I put it down, you gotta pick it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so your third Thursday poetry night. I Brian Dorn tomorrow night. Yes. yes. Um, I think I'm not to pat myself on the back, but I think I'm one of the only people who's been a feature at all, almost all, no, three out of four of the iterations. Probably. Um, which thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, but what's kept it going? Like you, you haven't missed a step. You had four different venues, but you haven't. There's been no breaks. There's one. Once, when the when um, the changing spaces cha changing spaces closed, and before I moved to the bookstore, I lost one, one month. month. That's all I've ever lost. And to me, I've always said this. I've said this many times. It's a credit to our community at large that I was always able to find a venue 
from my reading, that there are business owners or various people who see the value in what we're doing, we, collectively here, all of us, uh, in the poetry scene, um, and providing venues. Uh, and so it's not, it's not just me doing it, it's, it's these other people out there who are in the sport. What keeps it going is new poets coming along, like you. You came along in the early stage. Mary was in there in the early stage. Someone like Brian Dorn. I mean, a few years ago, it pops up. Yeah. He's, now he's everywhere. He was in Schenectady the other day at a reading that Alan was doing at Union College. Okay, that one. I thought that me and Becky Schmader were going to be the only ones, community poets there. Oh, no. Brian Dorn. <laughs> so, and at one time, he was going to more poetry readings than I was. Oh. Of course, he's not writing a blog about him, so that, that slows me down, you know? <laughs> But, but if you want to start writing a blog about it, just talk to me afterwards. I know a guy who runs a website. Uh, but that's, see, and that, that's it. It's just people coming in. Um, you know, we've had young poets that pop up every once in a while that are open mics. And, you know, some show up once or twice and then go away. You know. But, you know, one of the successes that Nancy and I have over in Troy is that we have poets there who really don't show up anywhere else. Right. Um, or show up rarely other places as well as people who, who show up lots of places, like Craftsman and, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and Sally, you know. So it's, um, it's, it's just a support of the community. If nobody ever showed up, it'd take me a while to catch on. I'm very stuck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, if two people, back one time, Brian, what was it last summer? It was just you, me, and uh, the feature, was that? At the Social Justice yeah. Center? Yeah. yeah, that was the guy from Woodstock. Yeah, Mike Plasky, I felt bad for him. He did a good job, it was good. He's a good sport, yeah. But I mean, if that happened month after month, maybe after about six months, I get yeah. it. That's <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we used to have those nights at Valentine's where it would just be you, me, and Dale. Never, because yeah. you, know, you look at my blog. Right, but at the, the blog, I mean, <laughs> the place was packed. But in reality, it was the three of us sitting yeah, at the sitting bar, bar waiting, waiting for the bus to pull up. Um, yeah. but, but we keep it going. Yeah, because the, there's people out there. Oh, Kelly's here. Well, you're joking, but I talk to people, you know, the internet is a wonderful thing. You talk to people from
fees are, but we have we have to have the venues right. where, where people go. So the Writers Institute is part of that. A anything else you can think of, the Art Center. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, the other thing I think of is that is also for that you also have a very strong grassroots level of artists here because this is an affordable area to live. You know, you're only a 150 miles from New York City, um, and you can still get down there easily and everything. This is an affordable area to live. So all kinds of artists, not just poets, but musicians and painters and stuff can, can do things here. And so many of the really interesting things that go on in this art scene come from grassroots things. You can think out of the UAG Gallery, for example, or even the Art Center in Troy. It's not one of these megalithic kind of things that tries to run all the arts. It's got its little niche, and it gives classes, and it has exhibits and stuff, and it gives us a space to do poetry. So there's a, a variety of this different stuff. I, I don't know what it is. It's just, maybe it's just the artists doing their art, you know? And we have a community that support each other. You know, like we have, you know, Don has his reading that's winding down, but, you know, we, we support Don's reading, we support yours, we support Mary's, right. we support mine. You know, right. everyone has their things in this one big family, and I think that is a testament to, to this area that other cities and folks that I've talked to over the years from bigger, bigger cities, yeah. um, they, they don't have, like they live in their little bubble and <coughs> expand out, and they realize there's a group right next to them doing something similar that they could combine. Started out as, yeah. like you said earlier, in that little group and just expanded and grew. Well, and you know, when I was, my, early on in my remarks, I've talked about being in New York City and not feeling welcome. And I think that's another characteristic of that, that we we are welcoming and warm and open. And I think that's how art thrives in community. Mm -hmm. You know, we well, talk I just want to say, don't, don't forget the Lark Tavern and Kiss Collins and Exactly, exactly, exactly. We have support from the community at large in these um, venues that, that give us space, yeah. like here. Yeah, yeah you know, absolutely. People come in, we just want people to buy beer. You know? <laughs> you know? But they don't, they, how many more beers and how many more dinners do they sell tonight because of this? Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, like Lou was saying, with the Tessa, I'd be curious, but, yeah. you know, Howard at the movie. Yeah, oh, Howard, yeah, I shouldn't forget you know, about Howard has been a huge yeah, right. you know, supporter. All oh my years. gosh. You know, we're again, the time, that, we're the time that there's three of us sitting in a bar and yeah, yeah, yeah. he still does it. Well, he still does it. Yeah. 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 Right. So, so that's important. Community. I think, and that may be the key. Maybe the key is for whatever you do in, in the world, is try and work with other people, cooperate, and just do it because it's fun to do. I don't think it's sort of selling. Dan, you want to talk about when you were the taxi driver? <laughs> yeah, okay. That just made, yeah, yeah. When, when Tom Mattel was responsible for getting Allen Ginsberg up here in this area in what, 91? I think it was. I think it was. Pretty, pretty sure it was 91. Uh, anyways, uh, and he arranged a series of events. Allen did a, a reading, a packed house reading in Page Hall. So, any of you have been in Page Hall, you know how much it takes to pack that house. Um, People were sitting on the floor and everything else. And then Alan, and this is, just today I got um, something from Edie Abrams. They found a poem by Allen Ginsberg in Bernie Sanders' papers. They were going, somebody was going, oh my gosh. And it's a poem written in 1986 by Ginsberg when he was up in Vermont and, it, and it, he plays on the word socialist throughout the whole and it's a, you know, it's just a, it's sort of a toss-away poem, but it's a typical Allen Ginsberg type thing. And they just found it. And um, so Allen Ginsberg was an activist. My point of that is he was an activist. He recognized Bernie Sanders early on, socialism was important in that. And somebody also has just written a new book about Allen and poetry and activism. But anyways, after the, the Page Hall reading, he did two shows. Uh, he was in his 70s, it must have been his time, or 80s. No, I think in his 70s, because a few years before he died. He didn't really die that, that old. I think maybe he died in 79. Um, so anyways, he, he did two shows at the QE2 as benefits for the AIDS Council, with 
we don't have that organization now, but it's morphed into other things. But the AIDS Council in Northeast New York, two shows. And he packed the house, sold out. <coughs> so my job, Sally's alluded to, was to get Alan from page four <laughs> down to the QE2. That's like what? Six blocks? Yeah, right, right. Even a taxi driver, you know, what's going to help? So, now here's the other thing. After the reading, Alan is there. He knows all these people who want to see him, sign books. Old friends are there, everything. He comes to me, because I was sort of off stage, and he knew I was his driver. And he said, all right, how much time do I got? <laughs> so I told him, whatever it was. He said, tell me when I need to go. So he went down there, and he dealt with his crowd, he shook hands, he signed books, he did everything. Tapped him on the shoulders, time to go. Waved goodbye to people, off we went in my car. In my, in my car was, it was the old Nissan Stanza wagon. <laughs> uh, in my car was Tom Gola, I don't remember how he used to ride with me, who was a reporter for the for Metro Land. So he's in the back seat, Alan's in the passenger seat. I should have saved that seat. <laughs> but who knows, all of Jack's friends farted in it. So, <laughs> so anyways, we, we drove to the QE2. On the way, I'd seen Alan Reed in the Poetry Project a number of times. In fact, I, I think my brother got his photograph on a little notebook and stuff. Anyway, so we're in the car, and I said to him, you know, when my kids were little, I'm trying to put them to sleep. I memorized poems to sing them to sleep. I said, one of the poems I remember, uh, I memorized was Blake's Sunflower. And I used to sing it. Now, Ginsburg had the, the famous version of Sunflower that he recorded singing. And so did Ed Sanders from the, with the Bugs. They also had one. Ah, Sunflower, weary of time. So, so Alan says to me, how do you, how does your version go? So mine was sort of a combination. So I sang him his my version of Sunflower. Then Alan sang me his version of Sunflower. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Tom Gold in the back seat freaking out. He can't believe it. He's like, oh my God. Can Alan get freaking here singing Sunflower? Yeah, thank you. That's, yeah, that's one of my great moments. Because I, you asked early on about when you became a poet. Early on in high school, I stumbled on Alan Ginsberg changed completely how I thought about poetry. Completely. Because I was reading the old anthologies, you know, English poetry going all the way back to Chaucer's, they read Shakespeare's sonnets and all these things. And, you know, I liked the poetry and everything, but it didn't do anything. I read how, and I used to read it to my friends who, who weren't even poets, and they would just think I was nuts, you know? So here I was with my hero, my elder, in the car, Sitting next to me doing that. So that was a valuable experience. One of those moments. Yeah. Thank you, Sally. <laughs> She's wearing a three guys from Albany button. I have my three guys from Albany button. Every job that I've had, they keep it on my cork board or in my cube. So it's 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 traveled with All right. I can't believe it's like a bummer. Two cases in the basement. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, Mr. Uh, uh, Rossiter from uh, Chicago. From Chicago. Oh, okay. Our correspondent from Chicago. Yeah. Yes, actually, getting back to your poetry, because I know your poetry fairly well, I've probably done this, and I'll, I'll just make a comment because I don't want to bias you. I found it interesting that the poem you said was your favorite poem. It's uh, so romantic. So I'm just it goes back to what I said right at the beginning about being an adolescent poet. <laughs> you know, a really good poet never stops being an adolescent. We're all, we're all still, and, and that, you know, the whole romanticism that goes with it. Now, sometimes you can be a really bad poet and be super romantic and everything. We know a few examples from our community about people who do that. But, but, what? Nothing. But anyway, so, yeah. But that's I, what I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyone else? Questions?
8.15. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us.